Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is John Kolb. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Henry. John is a business owner, a team productivity expert, a best-selling author, and a former intelligence officer. He's originally from Australia, and John co-founded Team Results in 1996. It was driven by the frustration with the team development options that were then available to businesses and government. And with encouragement from early clients, he and his partner applied their academic training and practical leadership experience to build the unique approach to team productivity improvement that eventually became Team Results. Uh, the company grew rapidly, expanded to a wholly owned U.S. owned branch in the United States in 2005, and now operates as a very successful business in both hemispheres. In 2004, John and his partner Peter wrote the global bestseller, Crocodile Charlie and the Holy Grail. I have not had a chance to read it, uh, but it's a consolidation of 10 years of work with peak clients into a pretty compelling story about team productivity, leadership in business and government, and happiness at work. Uh, John is a qualified, uh, qualified, qualified, I should say, in psychology uh, from the University of Melbourne and in mathematics and statistics from the U.S. National Cryptologic School. I knew I was going to stumble on that one. Cryptologic School, where he also taught on the faculty. So this episode, we're going to chat about John's interesting entrepreneurial journey, and we're going to focus in on this topic of productivity improvement, specifically team productivity, and we'll get some tips and advice that we can apply to our small businesses. Uh, John lives in the Washington, D.C. area, I think in Maryland. Is that right, John? That is. Yep. So once again, John Colm, welcome to the show. Well, thank you again, Henry. All righty. So let's, uh, let's start back in the journey. We usually like to start around college time. And obviously, as I mentioned here in the bio, you studied mathematics, you studied psychology. So if we go back to that point in time, what were you thinking you were going to be when you grew up? <laughs> well, Henry, there there are two answers to that. The short <laughs> one is that there is that I thought there was a strong connection between math and psychology, and back in those days, uh, nobody else did. But now that that's that's uh, strongly seen. In fact, there is a professional society that studies the connection between the two things. That's the Society for Chaos Theory and Psychology in the Life Sciences. Okay. Um, and increasingly, uh, some of the ideas about chaos and fractals and emergent behavior and those sorts of things, the sorts of things that you heard the Ian Malcolm character in Jurassic Park talking about, uh, becoming applied to the study of individuals and groups and organizations. And I sort of had a very vague inkling that that, that might be a thing uh, all those years ago, but it was hard to get the university to agree for the combination of those two subjects. Right. So, so tell me a bit more about that, because I know very little about that combination of things. How is it that we apply it nowadays? How do you, uh, or do you apply it in the work you do in team productivity building? Well, if you came on a team program with us, and typically those programs run about two days, uh, and they spend about half their time indoors, half their time outdoors, unless you quiz me about the basis of the program out of hours, you probably wouldn't have to deal with the theory at all because there's too much theory in in, uh, in team and leadership training these days, far too much theory, not nearly enough of the practical 
um, how to do it and how to change your own behavior, how to change the behavior of others. But the answer to your question is that uh, it's really only during the Industrial Revolution, Henry, that we began to think human beings should function like machines. And you've all heard that saying from your father or your granddad, a good organization functions like a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. That's, that's from the Industrial Revolution. And we only started to think that people were like machines when we started to make machines. Uh, we didn't think that was true before, and it isn't, and we don't think it's true now either. Uh, people, organizations, groups, teams, nations, companies all behave far more like living things. And there's a whole branch of the study of chaos that applies to living things. So we use some of those ideas. The biggest one really is that, and we've all seen this in a work team, sometimes very, very tiny things can cause a very, very big effect. Uh, And sometimes very large things, huge things can happen. And you'd expect there to be a large effect on the team, but actually there's almost none. Interesting. The the $100 word for that is non-linearity. And there's a whole area now of, of people that are looking at that, trying to figure it out. Very interesting. Okay, so after college, what did you end up doing? After college, I I joined the intelligence community, and that's really the other half of the answer to your first question. Uh, When I was a child, I read the Sherlock Holmes stories avidly. Before there were movies and TV series, there there was a series of stories. They were in a magazine, actually, and then compiled into a book written by a man named Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And there is one Sherlock Holmes story, uh, Henry, called The Dancing Men. And anyone who would like to read it should do so. And it's a story about a criminal gang who are using secret codes to communicate with each other. And the great detective breaks the secret codes, sends the messages in their own code, and uses that to catch the bad guys. Hmm. And I read that story, I think, at the age of 12, and decided that I wanted to break codes and catch bad guys. Wow. So straight out of university, that's what I did. I joined the intelligence community and uh, did it for 10 years. Amazing. It's amazing how that (laughs) stuck with you and drove you all those years. Now, how did you end up at the U.S. Department of Defense? Well, there's cooperation between the two nations that goes all the way back to World War I, uh, 1918, 1914-1918. So I got dragged into that. And uh, somebody said, OK, Colm, you know, you're, <laughs> you're going to go to the United States and uh, you're going to uh, be one of our uh, liaison people to the uh, American intel community. And so off I went. Wow. What year was this that you came to the States? That was 1990. It was the year of the first Desert War, Operation Desert Shield, which then became Desert Storm. Uh, ironically, uh, some people who were alive then will remember it as one of the Worst winters we had. So here we are fighting this war in the desert, mm. and we can't get to work because there's three feet of snow on the ground. Wow. So did you then stay in the States after that, or did you go back to Australia at some point? Well, here's the thing about that. Before, before they send you overseas, uh, you get the big lecture. <laughs> it was one of the requirements. Uh, you know, you had to go and see the big boss. It's the only time you ever would. And the, the lecturers basically don't single-handedly, you know, destroy the relationship between the two nations. <laughs> and, uh, and do your level best to get on with the American analysts. So I took that advice to heart. I, I took that literally, and I got on particularly well with one of the American analysts. <laughs> and uh, we are now married. <laughs> and we have a 22-year-old in school. I see. So that changed your path and made it a little bit more permanent than you anticipated. Did you uh, did you contemplate taking her with you to Australia, or how did that go? 
Uh, Leslie's been to Australia with me, but we wanted Ben to grow up uh, in one school system without having to bounce between the two. Yeah. And uh, America turned out to be it, and he's now at a he's now in college and doing well. So I think we made the right decision. Yeah. How about that? Very interesting. Okay, so then you, you left uh, government work uh, and went into the private sector, right? That's right. After 10 years in the Intel community, I, I bailed out. And so what, what led that? What uh, made you decide to now go into the private sector and pursue a career there? Oh, a couple of things. Uh, firstly, the thought that 10 years was long enough. Yeah. Uh, you, you get, it's hard to describe, but you get to a point where you maybe think that your luck's running out. Uh, and I just sort of had that feeling after 10 years. And also I wanted to uh, learn something about managing finance, believe it or not. Okay. And that's that's something you can't do in that community. So um, you, did that, you did some operations management, but then you were also a CIO. So you, do you have a technology background or do you just develop it over time? Tell me about that. I have a math background. A, a math degree is one of those useful degrees, you know, mm-hmm. that, that helps you your whole life. Um, it helps you speak the same language as the technologists. But no, I am not a technologist. I'm not the guy who can fix your computer. Luckily, what a CIO does mostly is move people and money around. Right. And I knew how to do that. And you know, we had to solve business problems with, with technology, but you don't have to necessarily know the technology, right? Exactly. In fact, one of the best things you can do is keep the politics away from your good technical folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so you did that for some time, and then if I got it right, in 2008, you start your first business. Did I got that right? Uh, 2006, we started uh, – sorry, what am I saying? 2016, we started uh, – let me start again. Now, I'm confused. <laughs> Can't be 2016. <laughs> <laughs> this was Willis like and Cole. Older... When did you start that firm? Oh, that was that was a, just a very short thing. No, let's go okay. back and do and do this right. I'll promise to get this right this no time. Nineteen ninety six, nineteen ninety six was when we started Team Results in Australia. Okay, I see. Uh, two thousand uh, two thousand five was when we started Team Results in the United States. Uh, the very first business I ever had, I was thirteen years old, and uh, was selling do-it-yourself, build-your-own radio kits with another kid from school. Uh, we would sell the parts in plastic bags with instructions and we'd be available to help people if they had trouble. And you could just build your own radio. So that was quite a popular thing. Willis Cole was just a very short thing that uh, a retired army general named Simon Willis and I did uh, just to uh, really uh, more of a hobby, uh, just to help the special forces in the United States get their hands on some new technologies in a, in a quick way rather than a slow way. But the but the major business by far all along has been team results. Team results. So yes. how long after uh, how long of a stint were you in the private sector before you started team results? Um, no time at all. Uh, I was uh, the last job I had, the last line job I had, was working for large councils. So I think San Francisco, San Diego, uh, a big city by the bay with a huge tourism, huge movie business. Um, that's where I was. It's called the city of Port Phillip. It's in Australia. And uh, I was perfectly happy as their general manager there. Uh, and one day sitting at my desk, I had a blank piece of paper in front of me and I picked up a pen and I wrote the words team results. And at that moment, I knew that I would open a company called team results that would do team and leadership training. It was as quick as that. And so as I read in the bio, I'm suspecting, but tell us there must have been frustrations building over time in this particular area 
Is that what led to you deciding there's an opportunity here that's not being served? Yes, I think so. It's an experience that a lot of people have had, uh, particularly if we work in the government or for a larger medium company, less so if you work for a, a small, a very small company. But everybody else has had uh, has had team building done to them, and it's you know <laughs> it's the active verb, and you're in the passive role. You have to report. Team building is something that gets done to you, and what else do you have done to you in your life? You know, dental surgery. So people enjoy it as much as they do a root canal, and they show up and they get patronised to death. The Office makes good fun of that with Steve Carell. Right. Um, they show up and they get patronised to death. They get lectured, and lecturing never changed anything. Uh, they get given a lot of theory. They get treated as though they know nothing. They get filled up with a lot of information. And the problem is they already had a lot of information. And you can only put so many penguins on the iceberg, Henry. Um, if you keep adding penguins to the iceberg, then every new penguin that you add on one side, there's another. There's an old penguin falling off into the sea on the other side. So I can visualize that, but w what do you mean by that? <laughs> what what's, what is it that, that you're trying is... to tell me by that? that most people out there have been coursed and trained and lectured and taught to death. Okay. And the last thing they need is another one, yet another consultant trying to pack in yet more and more information on top of what they already have. And a whole bunch of penguins, you know, fall off the edge because the new penguins have added and they're not necessarily any better. What we need in this world is unpacking, not packing. Mm -hmm. And... I think you also have a pretty strong opinion on the typical team building exercises that we've all gone through. Yeah. Tell me about your thoughts on that. Um, look, they vary. Uh, and it should be said that there's a, a good and valid history behind them. At the end of World War II, uh, which is where all team building, all those traditional team building things come from, they had a huge problem, which is a very large number of leaders wanted nothing more than to get out of the military and get back to their lives. And the military was worried about the loss of expertise. So they invented these little games uh, where the old folks, just before they left, would try and train new people in leadership. And that's where the whole get across a river using four 44-gallon drums, eight pieces of wood and 10 ropes. And one of the drums had a hole shot in it in 15 minutes. That's where that all began. I see. And in its day, it was very valid. But, uh, you know, you've got, to, you've got to reflect on the fact that this was 17, 70 years ago. Time has moved on. Uh, work styles have changed dramatically. People have changed. Industry has changed. And these are very old ideas. Interesting. All right. So let's start to dive into this then. Uh, team productivity for a small sure. business is where I'd like to focus. And, and so where I think we would start is, let's say I do have an organization. I've got a team of people. What are the, some of the ways that I should be measuring? And furthermore, what are some of those indicators that I should look for that tell me I need help here or I'm doing okay? Uh, how do I measure that? I'll answer that in, I'll answer both questions. One is how would I know that it's perhaps a good idea to do something active with my team? And the other is how can you measure the results? Um, how would you know it's a good time to do something with your team? There are two main reasons. By far the most common reason that people certainly engage our group is because they are already very good leaders and they want to keep the edge sharp and they know there's a challenge coming up. So, for example, they've won a new contract. Great, but what do you do now? Or finance, there's some understandable friction between the finance department and the IT department. What do you do about that? Um, we, uh, 
we need to have better communication between the members who are in the in uniform and the ones who are not. There's a bit of a almost a social uh, hierarchy between them that isn't helpful. So typically, visionary leaders foresee a need. The other reason uh, to do something, of course, is when something goes wrong. Now, the organisations that are in deep denial, where everything's going wrong and everybody knows everything's wrong, but the management won't admit it, almost never seek help. They usually go down uh, in a cloud of denial on their own uh, without seeking any help, and that's unfortunate. But typically, as I say, it's a visionary leader who anticipates the need for something. And Colin Powell, you said it best, he was asked, who do you hire? And Colin Powell said, the person I hire is the one who can look ahead, the one who has the ability to see around corners. Mm. Um, so that's typical. Um, I'll give you two examples just so that it's a little bit more concrete. Somebody comes to us and says, hey, listen, we've got a team that just can't get, done, can't get things done on time to save their souls. They're lovely people, but they're never on time and we're losing business. That would be run reason. Uh, another leader might come and say, look, our team gets everything done on time, but they cut too many corners to do it. And we have consistent quality problems. Well, those are two different team dynamics, two different problems. They need two different kinds of problems to address them. The commonest reason for uh, people, people uh, wanting a team program, needing one, uh, is that there is a need to unify a group in the face of some challenge or change that's coming up. New CEO, new contract, something like that. Measurement's an interesting one. Uh, how are these things normally measured? The answer to that's very simple, Henry. Normally, they're not measured at all. And that's one of, <laughs> that's one of the problems. Uh, it's very hard to justify something if you can't measure the results. Uh, when Pete and I started our business, we decided we didn't actually want to be in the business at all if you couldn't measure results. And we talked to Harvard and a bunch of other very smart people and asked them, how do you do it? And uh, we designed 20 years ago a measurement instrument called Team Dashboard, which, we, which we've been using all this time since then. So we have about 10,000 norms now. Mm. And the purpose of Team Dashboard is to measure productivity change. So benchmark productivity before you do something, benchmark it right after, and then, and then wait a little while and benchmark it again to see if it lasts in the workplace. Okay. All right, so, and so that's the key measure. Of course, that's a hard thing to measure, especially if you haven't baselined it to really be able to measure whether it's going up or down. But often, as a leader, especially in a small organization, you get a gut feel, don't you, as to whether it is improving or decreasing or whether we're ready, like you said, for example, to take on a big expansion. Absolutely. The, the overall, and, and some, in some, if there are any employees listening to this who don't like their boss, then they roll their eyes. But <laughs> it, is, it is a fact <laughs> that what I found over the years is that bosses, managers are almost always right about the broad strokes of their group. It's very rare that the boss is completely out of touch and completely unaware of what's going on. So the, the measurement itself uh, won't surprise them in that way. Um, we we uh, are looking for a productivity improvement of between 20 and 40% from a program that we run, and we want that productivity improvement to last for at least a year. Okay. Uh, those, those are the standards we use for a two-day program. Yeah. Uh, will it be obvious that things have improved? Yes, it will be. The big advantage of measurement, though, is two. First of all, it lets you report and justify it to the managers above you who haven't seen the change with their own eyes yet. And secondly, it gives you some fine measurements as well. It's good to know everything's wonderful, but 
some things are probably more wonderful than others. And measurement lets you drill down and look at the details a little bit. Yeah. And then I think you talk about this thing called team rhythm. That's what you're trying to achieve over time. Is that right? Yes. Team rhythm is a term that I stole from a guy named Professor Ron Stevens, who works at the Brain Research Institute in the School of Medicine at UCLA. And his whole career is about studying team rhythm. But I love the term because we all we all know it when we see it. We've all been in teams that that had team rhythm and ones that didn't. We know we know when we're part of a team or running a team that's in the groove, that's got the rhythm, that's that's got the beat, uh, and that's working really well. And we also know when we're in a team that's working a bit like a six-cylinder engine with one cylinder not firing. We all know the feeling. Yeah. So, John, I've had uh, tremendous opportunities in my life, especially in my career, to work as part of high-performance teams. When I was in sales, for example, had few different opportunities. But what I always found, and I was always curious and curious to your thoughts, is that those teams don't last together for very long, at least in my sales experience. For whatever reason, people go off and seek other challenges. What is it about that that, or maybe that was missing in those teams that I was part of, that after about a year or two, it started to change, that the dynamic changed. People wanted off, they wanted something else. Right. Um, so, well, first thing I'll say, Henry, and I'd be interested to know if you agree, but it's it's been my experience and my colleagues that salespeople are special. Yeah, it's a um, different uh, different breed, isn't it? Uh, the, the motivations are are maybe different. I think so. Um, salespeople are the opposite of performers. Uh, a performer is somebody who's crushed if ninety percent of the audience don't love them every night. A salesperson is somebody who's fine if ninety percent of the people tell them to drop dead every day. As long as they succeed that 10% of the time, that for them is enough. And they go off, they celebrate, they buy themselves something and they keep going. So they tend to be different from the average workforce. High turnover in the sales team is typical. Um, it's, it's common in the industry and probably nothing to, uh, to, to panic about too much. The important thing, of course, is that when the team is together, that they work efficiently That's right. and that they fit in with the rest of the company. And right. the biggest challenge that we see with sales teams is that they don't fit into the rest of the organizational culture at all. And that can cause some big problems. Uh, remuneration and incentivization, which is a horrible word, is frequently, uh, is frequently the problem. But behind that, it's all team dynamics. Yeah, yeah good, good observation there. The other thing I wanted to ask you about in light of what we're talking about here with teams, I, I've had this come up with a couple of my clients here recently. Is that the whole dynamic of millennials and the different challenges that poses to teams? I buy into some of it. Some of it I think is, you know, kind of made up, if you will. But I'm curious <laughs> as to your thought and how you deal with some of those legitimate and understandable differences as to what motivates a millennial. And, and specifically in this context that we're talking about, the dynamics of a team that might have millennials and older uh, or previous generation workers and getting them to work together. Certainly. Um, this is a really interesting one. Um, I've, I've done a fair amount of work on this whole notion of millennials and written a couple of papers and done quite a lot of work in the Fed with it. It's something that the federal government is, is uh, studying with more and more care. Mm. Um, I'd like to begin answering your question with a quote from an actual millennial. Um, who uh, who was addressing a, a group of people that I was with a while back, and I agree with them completely. Uh, millennia, the, the thing, human beings haven't changed at all. Millennials are not different as human, as human beings. 
from any other human being in any other way. There is absolutely no medical, physiological, psychological reason at all to believe that humans have changed since the days of the pyramids. Um, however, times have changed. It's not people that have changed, it's times that have changed. And the biggest change is information overwhelm. That's the biggest problem that young people have today in the workforce is that the amount of information that's thrown at them in a day is more than the amount of information their great-grandparents had to handle in a lifetime. And yet they're still the same human beings. They still have the same cognitive apparatus, the same emotions. They're no different from their great-grandparents. It's just that they've got Twitter and Facebook and CNN and Fox and whatever else they're following and their work. And they got 200 emails and they have to go through them all in case one is from the boss and somebody's on the phone to them. And they've got a whole bunch of stuff from their family and they're somehow expected to juggle it all. Um, a lot of the behavior that, that you see is just, it's the consequence of, of overwhelm and the desire to, to bring certainty into a world where the amount of uncertainty is just not healthy. Yeah. So the best thing you can do for, an, for, for young people and old is get them to focus with purpose on one thing at a time. Yeah, very, very good insight. Interesting. But if we stay on this track and we look at, for example, the example you gave that we're preparing our team to handle an expansion or a new contract, a lot of times those then either implied or explicit motivators is money. There's going to be more income. You're going to get your bonus. We're going to be able to afford raises, whatever it might be, right? Is there, in your observation, truth that sometimes for millennials, while money is important, of course, that there are other motivators that you need to consider for them that are different perhaps than for those of us who are, you know, I'm in my 50s. Is, do you see that to be the case or is that not really what you've observed? It, it is the case and it's true for everybody. And while we're adding in, while we're looking at the uncertainties of a new contract or a merger, uh, you said maybe there's promotion, maybe there's more money, totally. Mm -hmm. But maybe there's less money, maybe they'll make me redundant. Mm. Uh, maybe they'll decide that I'm dead wood in my 50s and it's time to get rid of me or maybe they'll decide they've got no room to train young people if I'm 24 and they'll get rid of me right. so there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with change and the biggest mistake that we make is we don't address the uncertainty that comes with change we wait too long yeah. to communicate with the workforce we don't think we can communicate till we know what's happening but it's actually an illusion that we know what's happening and we need to communicate sooner because if you don't millennials and and 58-year-old people and everybody alike will fill the uncertainty around their heads, Henry, with two things, and only two things. And those two things are their highest hopes and their greatest fears. Now, if you're 24, your highest hopes and greatest fears are different from if you're 54. Right. And that's where the difference comes in. But I would urge people not to focus on difference and segmenting and resegmenting and re-resegmenting the workforce. If you need to do that, you're not thinking on a sufficiently high level. And instead of going down levels and re-re-re-re-segmenting your workforce until every individual's in their own private category, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's better to go up and, and see the overall cause. And the overall cause in the scenario you painted is uncertainty. Now, if I have kids in college and a mortgage, my uncertainties are different from if I'm just starting my career and I'm not even sure I'm in the right job. But it is uncertainty all across the board. Yeah. All right, keeping with this uh, thought of motivating a team to meet deadlines or hit performance targets, as you talk about, and I, it makes me think, okay, so one of the reasons I'm sure, well intended, that we do those exercises to, to do team building 
is because we we believe or we find that if we get to know each other and we believe in each other and want to support each other, that then we'll work together better. And I got to think that part of it is probably true. But give me some examples of how you help teams come together to meet deadlines and to become more productive. With pleasure. And I'll, I'll give you a, a small anecdote at the beginning, if I may, because uh, quite often when you start this conversation with, with with work teams and they're rolling their eyes, like, oh, my God, really? We've got to do, in high, got to do a high ropes course? Really? Are you joking? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which I would never ask a group to do for a large number of reasons, all of them very good. Um, the answer will often be, well, but you'll get to know each other. And a common right. response is, well, the real team building happens afterwards, of course, in the bar where we all drink a lot of alcohol. That's true. Well, when I started in the <laughs> intelligence community, I used to believe that. I really thought that was the answer as a young 23-year-old intel officer full of a lot of confidence and no skill. I thought, fantastic. You just take people out and you give them a lot of alcohol. It's wonderful. They'll agree to anything. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is the next day they don't remember what they've agreed to. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem with all of these programs, whether it's you climb up a high rope or you juggle Nerf balls or you go out and get hammered, is that the benefits of that don't last. They just last for a day or two. I see. And that's not long enough. Well, it is if you have a project that lasts a day or two, but otherwise it's not long enough. So the trick is how do you change behavior in a way that's lasting? And the answer to that couldn't be simpler. Um, let me ask you this, and anybody who's listening – uh, when you were a kid, do you think you could have learned to ride a bike if I just handed you the How to Ride a Bike book? No. What if I gave you a whole bunch of PowerPoint slides on how to ride a bike? <laughs> Even less. <laughs> I would not have <laughs> read them. Okay, we'll go one better then and have a real-life consultant come and lecture you on how to ride a bike. <laughs> the history of the bicycle, the operating principles of the bicycle, how to balance, how to not fall off. Would you then be a competent bike rider at the end? Um, I don't believe anyone can be talked into behavioral change. Uh, now and again, people say, well, the online world is coming along and how do you ever survive still doing face-to-face -face training in the online world? I have a very simple answer to that, which is on the day the Marine Corps stops training people face-to-face, -face, so will I. Hmm. But until then, I'm going to assume the Marine Corps knows something. <laughs> right. And what they know is that people learn by practice and rehearsal. That's also something that chefs know. They learn by practice and rehearsal. Some have gone to college and some haven't. But it's practice and rehearsal, doing things again and again and again and again. And that's the only way that the brain makes new pathways. The brain doesn't want to make new pathways. It only does so when it has to. And it only has to when you do something again and again. So the answer to how do you get people to develop good leadership strategies, good follow-up strategies, couldn't be simpler. They have to practice. They have to rehearse. They have to do it again and again and again. So now, can you give me a quick example of what you practice and rehearse in the two-day workshop? Sure. Let's pick on this team that can't get anything done on time to save themselves. And I'm just picking that as one example because it's simple, but we certainly have had teams where that's been the predominant referral. They're great people. They just can't, can't hit a deadline. They can't do it. Well, what we do is we take them away for two days, give them the project to manage, and that project is mostly going to be about finishing on time. There'll be a lot of uh, components in it that are proprietary. Um, simulations, by the way, the biggest difference, I think, between simulation and team building is simulation doesn't work if you've seen it before. If you're in a flight simulator and you know that you're going to lose the number two engine 15 minutes in, that's not a simulation because you know what to expect now. Mm -hmm. So the next time you do a flight simulation, they'll throw something different at you. 
So they're doing, they have to do something they've never done before. They cannot be doing team building as own. It just doesn't work. So we'll give them a project to do that's hard that they've never done before. And that's our real skill, Henry. There are a lot of training companies out there. Our real skill is designing these simulations. We're gamers. Most of us have a fairly hardcore gaming background. And we and game theory, whether it's a physical challenge outdoors or a challenge in front of a screen, a game is a game. Um, so we'll design these games for them to do, half indoors, half outdoors, these challenges uh, that are unique to that client. And so the first time they try and make a deadline, they will bring to that the same habits that they have at work. In other words, they'll make a complete pig's ear of it. (laughs) (laughs) They'll be outrageously late and they'll be arguing with each other and some will be on time and some won't be. And some will think they got the job done on time and then some others will say, well, you didn't do the job. No wonder you were done early. And it, it will be complete chaos. Now, the nice thing about a simulation is the big difference between that and the same thing at work is laughter. That's the big difference, because in the end, it's only a simulation, and you can have a big laugh about it. No wonder you got done on time. You took all my resources and Fred's. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you so know, you, you and, laugh through the embarrassment of, of coming out what you, your habits are, but that's how we kind of yes. – but, but in the background, we're learning something even as we laugh exactly. through it. Exactly. Yeah. We have to separate from the attitudes and above all the significances that gave rise – to the stop in development that happened. We stop developing when the stakes get too high, when it gets too significant, when we get too scared, right? You don't learn to walk a tightrope when you're 100 feet off the ground. You learn when you're four inches off the ground. If you're 100 feet off the ground, you're far too terrified. So this is not just true of, of, of our company. This is true of all simulations, including ones that go right back to the Roman army. Simulations allow you to succeed and fail in a safe place, where if you fail, it's not a great disaster. The company didn't lose a million dollars. Nobody got fired. They didn't just lose their biggest client. And hopefully, therefore, they can rehearse, fail, laugh about it, learn, map it into new strategies. And as the two days move forward, there'll be ups and downs. But what I would be hoping is that they get better and better at managing timely completion of harder and harder tasks. And by the time they're finished, uh, they will know that they can complete an immensely difficult task on time. So they'll never be able to go back to the old picture again. Um, They can argue that it's harder at work. They can argue that work is different. They can make a hundred different arguments, but they can never again say that they can't do it because they just did. And there's nothing more powerful than that. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. Great stuff. And then you will have baselines of that team's productivity beforehand and then at some point after measure again so that you have that component you talked about. Yeah, absolutely. um, Measurement's the big thing that's missing uh, the, the, the training industry has, has fa- training generally, the, the training world has failed industry in all kinds of ways. And uh, that's why people are so impatient with training. And measurement is probably the biggest of those. Um, I, there's sort of an attitude in the training industry that's unreasonable of bosses to want to measure. Well, I'm a boss, not a trainer. <laughs> and I'm not going to spend money on something I can't measure. You better believe it. Um, I might do team programs for a living, but I'm also a successful entrepreneur. I don't spend money on things that have no benefit. Yeah. Well, it's when you don't measure, it's easy to say, well, it's because you all didn't take action. You didn't implement these theories that I taught you. And so it's there's an easy out there when you don't have to measure it. What has been in your experience, John, uh, the reason why when you have productive teams with the exclusion of the, you know, the sales scenario that I gave you earlier, why that usually leads to better retention of your staff. 
I mean, I can think of some obvious reasons, but I'd like to get your, your input on that. Well, you have to ask yourself why staff leave. And if you process that anecdotally or if you look at some of the research that's been done on that, the most frequent reason for leaving an organisation is that you're leaving a person, not an organisation. The commonest reason for, I mean, obviously people leave for very healthy reasons too, growth, development. In my case, I wanted to get more financial expertise. I had nothing at all against the intelligence community. I just needed to improve my own personal skill set. But one of the commonest reasons for leaving is you leave, is you leave because of a person, a boss, a boss's boss, colleagues. Uh, you just don't feel happy there anymore. If you can do something about those relationships and in it, at least find something to admire in the people you work with, you don't have to agree with them. You don't have to be the same as them. That's completely unreasonable. But you often can find something to admire in everybody that you work with. So organizations that want to reduce their retention rate will sometimes invest in team and group dynamics for that reason. Uh, in other words, they think they're addressing some of the commonest reasons people leave, which are people reasons. You can't stop a person leaving because they're incredibly talented and they're going to go on and be the next Bill Gates and you shouldn't try. <laughs> right. there's, there's a degree and a type of turnover that's really healthy. Um, team dynamics is aimed at slowing down the part of the turnover that's unnecessary and unhealthy. But in fact, uh, bosses who encourage the healthy kind of turnover are usually the best bosses. They are the people you want to work for because they've turned their organizations not only in a place you work, you want to work, but a place you want to be from. Yeah. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. And they, they see it, those people see it as an exchange of value. You're, you're providing yeah. value while you're here on my team. I'm going to help you get to where you want to go. And it's a win-win for everybody. McDonald's does that. You know, there are very few better things to have on a curriculum vitae than you worked at McDonald's. Yeah. Because people will think, well, you're certainly not a chef if you worked at McDonald's, but <laughs> boy, you know, you know how a business works That's and you, right. can show on, you can show up on time and you can follow procedures. Yeah, and you can be part of a team that, that produces. Absolutely. All right. We've touched on, obviously, a lot of the components of what team results delivers, but uh, summarize for me anything we've missed and how you engage with clients. The big, the big difference, um, Henry, is the simulations. And at some level, you can see that just as a, as a corny, cheesy ad for one small business. But on the other hand, if I thought something worked better than simulations did, I would do that. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm not wedded to the idea of simulations just because it sounds good. Uh, it's because we think simulation rehearsal, or to use the psychological term now, there's a, a, a newish term, although it's actually been around for many decades, called neural pathways. Um, and perhaps that, well, that's what I'll leave people with. Again, it's because of the industrial age. Um, we tend to think of the brain as, as a computer and learning as software. So if you want to teach me how to, I don't know, balance a balance sheet, assuming I didn't know in the first place, um, the way to think, a lot of people think of it as it's like buying a software that balances a balance sheet, but no, it's not. The brain doesn't put things in software at all. The brain builds new hardware, believe it or not. So if you go from knowing nothing about a balance sheet to being really, really good at it, it's because the brain has built some brand new balance sheet doing circuits. <laughs> it's like firmware, right? The brain builds hardware, exactly. And the only way to make that happen is rehearsal. Good stuff. All right, we'll start to wrap it up here. A personal question for you here. What do you love the most about what you do today? Uh, I think one of the things I've enjoyed the most is writing is writing uh, the the book, uh, Crocodile Charlie and the Holy Grail. 
which is a it's a it's a book uh, about teamwork and leadership and happiness at work. It's all about the stuff I've been talking about in a practical way. The context is a fun story. It's the story of crocodile Charlie Kingmore, who spends six months traveling around exotic locations in Australia, learning everything that he possibly can because he knows he has to go back and run his business when it's all over. Um, that book has, has been uh, enormously successful, and I'm just very grateful and humble for that. Uh, and the publisher of that book, Possibilities Publishing, and I have been uh, talking to all kinds of people about all sorts of things who have read the book or are interested. And I think that's the most fun is having that discussion with people who are just new to some of these ideas and who find that some of the more modern ideas about teamwork and leadership can can really help them. They're not my ideas, really. They're the ideas of people like IBM and Hitachi and the State Department and Polo Ralph Lauren and Toyota and Pfizer and the folks we've worked with over the years. All I did was write them down and turn them into a story. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. So besides that book, which we will have a link for in our show notes, is there another book that comes to mind that you would recommend to our listeners? Yes, uh, there is. I would urge listeners, particularly if you're a manager and a leader, uh, maybe less of the fashion of the week, you know, this week's trick, the five sure steps to something and the seven never fail methods for whatever else that you can find on the bookstore. Uh, these are usually very old ideas rehashed in a bad way. If you really want to acquire some wisdom as a leader, I would urge you to go to the classics and go to the greats um, and start by reading a book called The Prince, which you can get very cheaply. It's a very short book. It's more of a booklet, really. Mm -hmm. And it was written by a man named Niccolo Machiavelli in the 15th century. And it's about office politics. And it's the best book ever written. It will, it's everything you ever needed to know <laughs> about survival in, in, the, in the political environment of the office. Wonderful, uh, yeah. wonderful. That would be my choice. Yeah, we have not had that one recommended, so that is a first for that one. Thank you. Um, we'll have that as well as um, your book, as I mentioned, links to that on the show notes page of this episode. All right, last question for you, or last couple yes. of questions, actually. Last parting thought, piece of advice or something you thought, you know, he, he didn't ask me about this. Anything that comes to mind that you'd like to close with? Um, one of the things I'd, I'd like to say to people and reassure them is uh, so many organizations have real doubts about the value of investing in team training. And of course, all the team trainers out there are trying to tell you that you're wrong. No, you're not. You're right. They're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, the training industry generally has fallen far behind uh, the needs of, of uh, industry in general. It's, it's not practical. It's not focused on results. And uh, if you don't believe me, then then believe the the president of Toyota, who 20 years ago, uh, he had a rule. He said, you can't, you cannot do business with Toyota unless you have met me. It's like meeting the Pope before you're allowed to paint the Sistine Chapel, you know. So I had to go and meet Ken Asano, the president of Toyota, before we were allowed to do our very first team program there. We've been working with them for 20 years since then. So off, off John goes to meet the great man. And Ken Asano said only one thing to me. I didn't really understand it at the time, but I do now. And he said, John, always remember, Toyota is a business, not a school. Hmm. What and did what he, he mean was, by that? What he meant by that is there's no reason for me to spend a dollar on training if the company doesn't make a dollar fifty. Mm -hmm. okay. We're not trying to educate people for their good or our good. We're looking for practical benefit. Right. And I would urge folks to insist on that for every dollar they spend in a small business, um, particularly for things that are customer-facing. You can put a, pad a little bit of luxury into that, but anything that's not customer-facing, 
don't spend a dollar until you know how it's going to make you a dollar fifty. Great insight. Well, what do you think besides that? Besides making sure you got that, what do you think he was looking for in you before he allowed you to do business with Toyota? Um, I think it's fair to say that they were desperate <laughs> um, in a narrow way. They were looking for dramatic change. Uh, the car industry has completely turned on its head in the last 20 years, and the biggest change is supply chain and just-in-time manufacturing. Mm-hmm. When you bought a yeah, no, sorry. So, I'm sorry to interrupt. So that's great. What I was getting at is why do you think he had that practice of meeting with everybody that did business with Toyota? Oh, I understand. I understand completely. It's a thing called TPS, the Toyota Production System. Mm-hmm. And there's a wonderful Harvard paper written on that called Deco- – it's by Spear and Bowen. And it's called Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System. It's not an easy read. It's an academic read. So don't expect bedtime reading. <laughs> but – Toyota has uh, the most deeply held enculturation beliefs of probably any organization. They believe that the most important thing is learning the Toyota culture and building cars is secondary. They think if you know the culture, the car building will come. But if you don't, it never will. So they insist that everybody they work with really get the Toyota team culture before they're allowed to fiddle with the business. Got it. Got it. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. All right, where would you like our listeners to go to learn more about you and about team results? Where would you like them to go online? Well, since we're dealing mostly with, if you're from IBM or something like that, you might want to book a whole team program for yourself. But if you're a smaller business, you probably do much better just sending a couple of people to one of the group programs. It's a whole lot cheaper that way. And, And they are also our flagship programs. So that means your folks could get the same benefit that your large competitors already have. And yet it's it's affordable. So the place to go for that would be to our homepage, first of all, and that's teamresultsusa.com, T-E-A-M-R-E-S-U-L-T-S-U-S-A.com. Scroll down a little bit and you'll see a thing called the Team Results Masterclass. Click on that. And if you go to the class, you'll be very welcome. But even if you don't, there's material about that class and how we structure it that can help you with your own business. Fantastic. We'll have a link to that in case you didn't catch that. We'll have a link to it on the show notes page as well. John, this has been a great conversation. I've learned quite a bit. It's uh, compelling stuff. And obviously, you know what you're talking about and have the background to support it. Thank you for taking the time and for sharing your knowledge with us today. Well, Henry, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thanks also to everybody listening. Folks, this is Henry Lopez, and you've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.